So, if you're listening to the podcast, just look at the show notes and you can see a link for the handout for part two of week 11 of the Biblical Theology Course Seminar. We're working through Exodus, 1 Samuel, and Psalms. And so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get started with a, with a quiz. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this entry into a real summertime deal with hot dogs and potato salad and yeah. s'mores bars and um, for weather that, well, at least it was turning warmer. Thank you for sunshine. And for these good folks and for the opportunity to dig into your word again tonight. Father, was struck today as I was studying in Romans 8 that if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, I can read things that that should produce wonder and exaltation and awe and celebration in my heart and there's not there's not a right response. I, I can forget that the God of the universe is speaking. Is speaking to me, is speaking to us, is speaking to the world. And so protect us from that, Father. You know, the human and the given routines, and so it's understandable. And I think of how you talked to David and and you and you said through him that you know our frames, you, you remember that we are but dust. And so it's not like you're shocked by our frailty. Father, protect us from that particular manifestation of it. Give us joy, give us excitement, give us passion as we study texts that that are really familiar to most of us. But show us new things, things that we haven't seen before. Um, and show us your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, I'm going to redraw what was raised. Kind of this idea of, um, you know, God enters, God creates time and, and then is telling a story, right? And so this is, this is biblical theology. What is what is actually biblical theology? <laughs> Eric, that's the new mantra, isn't it, bro? Just like you know, pretty much. It just <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A unified story that leads to point to Jesus. And what are Four major movements that make up that story. Creation, fall, redemption or rescue, yes, restoration or new creation, you could say, it's kind of come back where it all began. So that's that's like the big story, right? And what's the six word that summarizes that text? Oh, and 
There you go. You got it, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> He's pulling a George Costanza. I'm out. There you go. <laughs> All right, so we've, we've learned as we've been thinking about uh, biblical theology, um, right, that there are a couple of different toolboxes that we have uh, in biblical theology. And so we call this the, the storyline toolbox, right? And so there's like these four major movements, and there's other kind of tools that we have in the toolbox. What were some of those tools that we have in the toolboxes? Storyline theology. No, nope, that's ex exegetical toolbox, but we're going to get there in a moment. Observation? Nope, also exegetical. Okay. It's all right. <laughs> so what are some of our storyline? Think story. Oh, what okay. story is Plot. Plot? Yeah. Yep. Themes. Themes. Yep. What's that? Typology. typology. Can you give me a definition of typology? Roughly in your own, I mean, you can quote it if you want. Or you want. Big boom, look at that. <laughs> What's typology? I don't know, I don't remember. Okay. Anybody want to give a stab at typology? Would it be the historical? Um, do I have anything to do with the historical account, I think? Only in the sense in which it's a storyline kind of tool, but yeah. Okay. Uh, Jen. He wrote it down with themes. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. It's, it's an op it's an open book quiz. It's fine. Yes. Say it. Say it nice and loud. Yeah. So that's, I, I think, a way, a really helpful way to remember typology is that word foreshadowing. And we all kind of know foreshadowing in stories, right? Like, you watch a movie and they've all they foreshadowed. Like, we're all familiar with that. And that's essentially what typology is. It's, it's kind of pointing to something, and then when that something happens, it sheds light on that thing that came earlier, fulfills it, completes it, flushes it out, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, what else? What are some other tools in our storyline toolbox for the world? We talked last week about this start with a C. It's this big theme. Continuity, discontinuity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So continuity, discontinuity, can someone describe what continuity and discontinuity means? And why it's important. I know this may be awkward, but this is so that you can actually walk out of this class yeah. next week in our last class together before summer um, and have, and like, you, you know something, you learn something. What's that? So well, that's would, would it be there are discussions. Would it be like um, uh, stuff that you can get out of the text that's important, um, that has meaning, and then maybe discontinuity? I don't know. I guess I don't know. I don't remember. Okay. Is that right? I want to hear how it takes when you finish high school. 
text that like companies use is where you make where like when you get your films is where you make sure that each shot follows the last one perfectly. So mm -hmm. you find your company to like all the films yeah, and so parts of the wrong way. <laughs> so like it it so the, the everything lines up and sticks together. together. Yeah. And then this company is where where you, you see like like very obvious jarring jumps for a reason. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, it, I, that that That's can be that can be somewhat analogous. Uh, when you think continuity, discontinuity, mainly. So let me let me put that along with themes, which is another another tool in the toolbox, right? So we went through a number of different th different themes to see biblical theology on display, right? So the story of sacrifice, the story of idolatry. We, we talked about. Um, Kingdom through covenant, so that that's a huge part of kind of similar to these major movements is the covenantal framework of the scripture. So we did that theme of kingdom through covenant. So continuity discontinuity works. You can see that really clearly in the covenantal structure of the Bible. So what you're doing is saying, and mainly in the coming of the new covenant, you're looking and going, what aspects of the work that God was doing through all of the covenants through the Old Testament, continues on in through the New Covenant, okay. and, and are there things that don't continue? Are, are there discontinuities in this overall story? And that's important because then you're, you're making some fairly important decisions on how you live out the Christian life, how you live out a covenant relationship with God, because... Do all of the commandments in the Mosaic Law, for example, or, or do all of those continue, or do they not continue in the coming of Jesus and the New Covenant? So you're, you're trying to determine continuity, discontinuity. Like and eating meats and certain Yeah, like all of those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can I wear a fabric made from different, yeah. different weaves? I was just talking about that. Should we? Should we stone someone for working on Sabbath? Should we? Right? What things continue and what don't? Yeah. And if so, why? Yeah. But what, what's your argument for why something may discontinue and something continues? So continuity, discontinuity. Uh, let me see here. What else do I want to ask? Very good explanation. So, so those are... Those are some of our larger biblical theological. So we have another toolbox that you guys started bringing up earlier, which is the exegetical toolbox. And we have the grammatical historical method. What's the grammatical historical method again? And again, this is important because what I hope is that you'll use these toolboxes when you're coming to the scriptures and you'll maybe think of one or two of them as a way to help you study and dive into the, to the scriptures. So... Um, What's does grammatical have to do with diagramming the sentence? Yeah, right. It's just it's just breaking out a text into propositions, right? So when we when we're doing this, like we, we talked about last week, I'm I'm looking at points now in an exegetical method along this story. I never want to lose the context of the overall story. And now I'm gonna kinda pull this out and I'm gonna study it, right? And I, I wanna study this particular thing. I wanna break out so, you know, today I was studying Romans 8, 1 to 4. And I, I'm studying that in the context of that. This is the time. It's on the covenant framework. I'm in New Covenant, right? I'm understanding I'm in the New Covenant. I'm understanding in the storyline of Paul and, 
the missionary enterprise that's happening in the New Testament as, as the word is going out. And I'm, so I'm breaking down propositions in Romans 8, 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Messiah Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that we in order that we might, that the law's requirements might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So I had to take that text and I had to break, start breaking out those pieces of because, because, for, so that, in order that, right? Like those are words that we learned last semester in how to study the Bible. And now grammatical historical, I'm, again, I'm just understanding it in the context of who he's writing it to, the time period that it's written, who Paul is, right, all of those things, to really understand that particular text, and then I'm looking at Romans 1 to 7, and I'm looking at 8, 5, all the way to 39, and then I was looking at chapter 9 to 11, so I'm understanding in the context of his overall argument. Now, what are, what are three key things that I do? Someone wanted to say it earlier when I'm studying a text like this. Context. Oh, that's good. That's not what I was looking for. I'm always going to love when someone says, she said, context is king. Right? That's, that's these pieces. Context is king. But what are the three steps that we want to take through when we're studying at this exegetical level? Yes. And there's, you can say it different ways. Observation and interpretation. I'm not spelling that right. Intrepidation. <laughs> interpretation. Application. Application. I went back to week three last night. Good job, Jen. First step, always pray. Yes. Yes. How can we turn this into a question? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for me? Four. I think four is better than two. Both can work. Yeah, so those are the, the questions that we can ask. Good job, you guys. That's, and what is exegesis? What does exegesis mean? Someone says. Yes, that's a way of saying it. Literally, what does it mean? To exegete. Exegetical preaching, you might hear someone say. Or she's a really good exegete. Yes? Well, Jesus, certainly. Yes, that's biblical theology, kind of needing exegesis. But exegesis means to pull out from, to draw out from, versus eisegesis, which is just Greek transliterations, right? Eisegesis means ice into put into, ex, 
ek out from out of, so drawing out versus putting in. I don't want to. I don't want to put in meaning into yeah. the text. I want to draw meaning out. It sounds like from. it's Greek. Is it Greek? Yeah. yeah. Transliterated. Um, it's not an actual Greek word, but yeah. So I have one question. I don't want to so I know there's a lot of like the old books and stuff written in Hebrew, and then some time along the way things started changing. Um, is it because uh, the Greek became the more dominant language? <coughs> uh, no, those were. That's just. Um, no, no, no. It's just it's just timing and geography and how the story is unfolding. And so that this, you know, when when we look at what I prefer to call just to be, you know, goofy, which I mainly am. Yeah. Um, I prefer to call it the first testament. Yeah. In the first testament, it, it is the story of certainly the creation of the world, and but it's the story of God's purposes through His people, how He meant to save the world through a special people that um, He ordained the Jews, right? And so that was that was their language. It was the language that it, it was why it's the language it was written. So we have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures wow. and then in the in the new covenant and as we see um, Jesus come onto the scene after this prophetic absence for 400 years between you know in our Bibles between Malachi and Matthew um, that whole dawn of that covenantal framework is happening still within it in a Jewish context of course Judea Samaria but in a world that is now, um, Koine Greek is the is the lingua franca of the of that region. I mean, all the business is done uh, primarily in Koine Greek. Um, Rome is uh, in power, uh, so Greek was the language of the day. But certainly, even in the New Testament, right? Jesus yeah. speaks in um, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Uh, so we've got all of that in the New Testament, but mainly Koine Greek is that's why. The, the New Testament, when the disciples, when Paul, um, whoever wrote Hebrews, <laughs> when John is writing that, that's why they're writing because they knew that that was the com that was the language of the common man. Right. The message would go forth uh, far more effectively because it was written in the language of what most common people would be. It was not a, um, it was not like a, a scholarly. It wasn't scholarly Greek. Uh, even though there are different levels of Greek in the New Testament. So um, like most Greek, when you're learning Greek, you start in like John. Uh, John is a, has a much easier Greek. He writes in a much easier style of Greek, whereas uh, like Luke, um, Mark, uh, Paul, certainly in most of his epistles is a far more challenging Greek in comparison to say John. Right. So even within that common language, there's, the way that you can, you know, it's like the difference between it can be English and I could be reading John Grisham or I'm reading Shakespeare. Right. And they're both written in English, but it's different, right? Yeah. It's a different kind of, you know, yeah. no, good question, good question. So just a, a, a brief review of, of last week as we were, because um, I just, for my own soul, it was really good to review what we went over and, and what our goal was uh, when we talked about you know, uh, we don't come to the Bible. Our, our main goal in coming to the scriptures isn't, you know, how can I grab this little nugget that I can take into the day for how I'm going to particularly 
lead my life, I want to come into contact with the living God, and I want the Holy Spirit to change me. And, and this was so interesting because um, as I prayed, I found myself, so I was traveling, I'm behind, I don't have as many hours this week to prepare the sermon as I normally would. And so I'm, I, 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 I noticed that I'm pressing in the time that I have to try and just kind of figure out as I'm reading what I'm going to preach. And so there's, there's the acceptance thing. And, and, and a big part of that step is, is kind of that observation interpretation where that's where, that's kind of where the, the magic happens, you might say, where, where the Holy Spirit is like, I don't want to miss, all of a sudden I realize I'm seeing it as merely the proposition instead of, so I can see there's this unfolding argument in 814. And, and Paul wants me to see, after everything we saw in seven, Paul wants me to see the incarnation and death of Jesus as the reason that my sin is taken care of and there's now therefore no condemnation hanging over my head any longer and there's this spirit that's in part. Like, so there's like this really intellectual thing and then there's this, wait a second, God sent, he didn't just say God sent Jesus, he said God sent his son. He didn't say God sent his son. He said God sent his own son. And he said, he didn't just send his own son in a manifestation of his presence like, like, like Yahweh of Sinai. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which I realize I just missed when I quoted it to you, as a sin offering. In order that requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Which means Jesus took on flesh and became the locus, he became the location of all the sin in all the world for all time. He, he became the location of that so that God could condemn not Jesus but sin in the likeness of my flesh and in that way stand in for me as a sin offering Jesus you are amazing so you have to like that's what we want right that's what we said I need a Holy Spirit charged good news announcement the secret of the good news is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done for us. It, all of a sudden that came true. But not until 3 o'clock this afternoon. Unfortunately. But thank you, Jesus, that it did. Right? So that, that's, what, that's what you want when you go to your Bible in the morning is, to be free in that way, to be joyful. And then we talked about some other, you know, these texts of Luke and John. He's interpreting things in, uh, concerning himself and all the scriptures, and he's opening his minds to understand the scriptures, that everything written about him and about Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. 
You know, we went to John 5, and we pour over the scriptures because we think we have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Don't, like, don't miss me. Yes, pour over the scriptures and know, know the story. Know this. Have this framework. But don't lose Jesus. Like, all of this is, right? It's story leading to Jesus. That's what we want. So that's we talked about those things, and we said, okay, we're going to ask uh, four questions. Uh, what is the author's one intended meaning in this text? So that's our observation, interpretation, application, those first two in particular. We're after that one intended meaning. Where does the text fall in the biblical storyline? Right? So that was the story of Bill Ball going up the top of the tree with Merkler Forest. Where am I going again? Okay, now let me dive back down in. How does this text point to Jesus? Those are some of our tools that we already talked about in our quiz. And then how do I read this text through Jesus? Right? And that was where I shared with you um, Keller's. We erased it on the. I want to hit myself in the chin. Erased it last, last time. So you remember Keller's? We had five. That I, I thought that kind of helped the through Jesus. So kind of questions that we already have. What does the text say and mean? How do I live? my life in light of that. Right? Then what was it? Oh no. Oh no. I can't possibly. You got that again. And then what? Ah, but wait. <laughs> but wait what? There is one who did. And now, now, yes, by faith in Jesus, in Jesus, I can. Good job. And then we went through our first one was Exodus 2014. And now we're going to 1 Samuel 17. So open your Bible. First Samuel 17, and I'm reading in uh, the Christian Standard Bible. It's story time. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sukkah in Judah, encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephesdamim. 
And if you ever have trouble with, you know, a sentence like that, you can just say the Philistine gather forces for war in this one place and they camp between another place and a different place. It's just a way to say it. Saul and the men of, you know, or you get to one of those genealogies, right, with a bunch of names and you're just like, and then a bunch of dudes begat another bunch of dudes and then Jesus came. <laughs> well, that's, my wife often says that. Just say it with confidence is what she'll say. Just say it with confidence. <laughs> Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of the spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now, David was the son of, of, of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. During Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, Shammah, the third, and David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, Take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these ten portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. <coughs> David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, Suddenly, the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. 
David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding, that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why do you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. Well, what have I done, protested David? It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, Yahweh, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may Yahweh be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head. He had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes. He tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. And then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come to me against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him, and today Yahweh will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, give the corpses, give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth, and all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that Yahweh saves, for the battle is Yahweh's. He will hand you over to us. I wonder if you know why he said that. Now think of the storyline of the Bible. <laughs> Jesus. Because 
Yeah, but not by sword nor spear, but thy Lord saves. Like, once, like, it's foreshadowed. Like, Jesus, ah, Jesus I'm, th- I'm thinking, go back. Yeah. Oh, you're going backwards. I'm going backwards. I'm going, f- I'm saying go back. Why did he say this? Where did he, that's not David's sentence. You remember when, uh, when Israel's running from Egypt, and you know they're freaking out because they finally get out and the, the armies are starting to track them down, right? Why did you take us out of Egypt? We had leeks and onions and stew and meat, and it just it was so great, you know, when they whipped us and killed us for four hundred years. Why did you take us away? And Yahweh said to Moses, because right there, they're backed up against the Red Sea. Yeah. They have the pillar of fire and, 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 uh, and smoke uh, guarding them, but they're trapped. What are we going to do? And Yahweh says through Moses, it is in quietness and strength. Be still. It's in quietness, for the battle is the Lord's. Mm-hmm. It's not by, you're not going to fight this thing. You just have to be quiet. That is really hard to do. That's really hard to do. (laughs) Isaiah picks up on that same thing. For it it is in quietness and strength that, that, that you'll be strong, that you'll have victory. And we think it's in agitation. (laughs) Movement and energy and no, I have to chill. The battle is Yahweh's. He will hand you over to us. There's this confidence. He'd heard that story over and over again. I think. I think that's where he's getting that from. He tried, he'd seen it worked out in his own life. And now he trusts, like, I'm just going to keep leaning on my God. When the Philistine started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. He put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. And then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sha'aram road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked, Abner, the commander of the army. Whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live? I don't know. (laughs) The king said, find out. Find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. This is the word of God. It's a big chunk of text. 58 verses. 
What is the author's one intended meaning and main point in the text? It's a little unfair to you, I understand. We're, 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 doing, this, we're doing this live. Okay. I think the main intended meaning is that the army, the Jewish army, was powerless. They had been humiliated for 40 days in a row <laughs> yes. against an enemy that was, on paper, far superior to themselves that they could not overcome. And they needed somebody on their side to step forward, of which nobody did until the least likely candidate yeah. stepped forward and rescued them, which is, a, if, if I believe correctly, a, a typology, and we'll probably get into this later, what Jesus did for us because he was the least likely method. They were, were expecting yeah. a triumphal king, and it was a, something totally different that saved us and that's what happened here, if I get it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think it's... So if we answer, if we, if we cut your answer up a little bit to some other parts of the questions, because um, you did a wonderful job summarizing that, if we stick at just the, the one intended meaning... I like how you said, yep, there's, there's this candidate, there's this, um, you know, and if, right, if we do, if we do this, we do this kind of, whoops. <clears throat> this kind of thing, right, we also want to understand, it's not the whole huge story, but we want to understand if this is 1 Samuel 17, what happened in 1 Samuel 16? Yeah, so he was God's appointed. He's already God's appointed man. And he's starting now to walk into, into that reality. And so that it's true, it, the battle is Yahweh's, but who does Yahweh use? Who's the expression of that? And that's where Roger is going, is that Here's this appointed man who's going to rescue God's people from his enemies. Yeah. That's well, we're not there yet, and we're not there yet. But that's. But you're right, and I think it is. That is the the storyline tool here is typology for us to see this foreshadowing, and if we even step up further into that larger storyline, right? It's what do we know about what what line is. David going to create and as I was if we go forward in the story thinking of that and using what we're talking about every, you know, the Bible points to Jesus and about how many sermons have I probably heard the radio or just and probably other people that always say you're David and you go out with your stones of all the and you slay your giants and I'm like that's not the point of the story, and that's not what is being told to us. I don't think. I think so let's so let's let's go there. The everything pointed to Jesus and the typology mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I think it could be easily missed, and you could go the other direction. Right, 
Right. So now, thank you. Thank you so much for arguing the point of biblical theology. Because you're right, right? Because that's what we said in the very beginning. If we don't, if we don't understand these things, then we're going to wrongly, if we're not seeing it in the, in the context of the larger story, which is, so First, first Samuel 16, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn and go, send any son of, to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected for myself a king from his sons. And the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. And he takes oil, anoints him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh comes powerfully on him from that day forward, which is also a very important aspect of what you're pointing out when, when we see Jesus, who's going to be anointed powerfully with the spirit before he goes into ministry. Yes? Yeah, so I think a little bit different tactic, although I understand, and just three simple words, God in charge. And I think of the Pentagon as big and gigantic as it is, and how powerless we've been in the last 50 to 70 years to, if we even should have been involved, how powerless we were to do anything. That's kind of the same thing. You have all the commanders, all the brass, all the, all the uh, weapons and everything else, and they're absolutely powerless. So whether it was the ordina ordination of David by Samuel, like you mentioned, or whether it's just simply uh, David going out there, God was in charge. I mean, even to, even to have that crazy rock embed in the part where the helmet is yeah. protected, right, we seem to understand in the temple, and for the strength of the throw to penetrate the temple like a boy, that's all pretty amazing. So it's very Hobbit-like. <laughs> Those hobbits could whip a stone. It's very yeah. It yeah. Glorifies God, regardless God of yeah. yeah, regardless yeah. of how yeah. how well and amazing you could think what David did was to anybody, to the most casual of observers. <laughs> I would say that it's quite obvious that God was in charge in that situation, and He takes He gets the glory. Um, regardless of uh, uh, how amazing uh, David being willing is, yeah. even God still did it through David. Yeah. So, he trusted God. Yeah. Right. Which there's all kinds of typology there as well. So we've gone through the author's one intended meaning and main point in the text, where it falls in the biblical storyline. How does it point to Jesus? Typology. We've talked about that. So let's let's go to that spot where you just kind of ended up, Roger. How do I read this text through Jesus? What does it mean for us? So understanding it in that larger storyline, seeing David, if we look, right, one of the things we want to do is we want to look backwards and forwards from a place in the story to help us understand that bit of the story, which is what you did there. You we went a little bit back to see where's David coming from and where is he falling and the trajectory of what God is doing. We could even go back and just read into like through the judges, through the prophets and, and, and to see this, this begging for a king and all of that. And then we go forward in the trajectory to say, okay, well, he is, we know that it's going to be said of Jesus. He's the house and lineage of David. We see that this is really pointing to who he is. So if it's not, the point of the story isn't, um, I'm David and I'm, you know, looking for the Goliath that I'm going to slay and, you know, my, what's my stone? What are my five pr pillars of life going to be? You know, the principles by which I will reign victorious in my life. If it's not that, and we're seeing it through Jesus, then what is it? What is the story telling us in relationship to Jesus? It's going to be a good outcome if we 
God's heart, like David was, because he had a heart for God's heart. And David showed the strength of the armor of God in his life, and he didn't care about his glory or success of the Lord's cause. And that's, that's good. I think those are some application, Those are some ways of application. Yeah. Let me put a finer point on it. Let's connect it to what, what we heard from Jesus yeah. to the, the, the guys on the road to Emmaus mm-hmm. and to the disciples when he's in the room before he ascends. And he says, and he takes them through all the scriptures yeah. and says how, it, so let's say, okay, so Jesus is here. What do you think Jesus would teach about this text that points to him? Because that's what he says, right? Like, you pour over the scriptures. They all point to me. So how would Jesus teach this text pointing to him, informing us about who he is? If the story of David as Roger interpreted it, which I think is absolutely correct interpretation, is that God's people needed a king to protect them from evil and God's enemies, then how would Jesus teach that interpretation in relationship to himself? What do we learn? That that's him, and that that's still, that's the role that he plays. That what I need, it's, I, I'm not David, I need a David. And there may be enemies like there were enemies of Israel in the, in the, in the presence of the Philistines. There may be enemies in my life, there may be enemies against God's people, there may be enemies to his cause. But what we all need is not merely us. We need that. We need God's man. We need God's king. That's how I think that would be a story that leads to Jesus. I, I think that could be. I think that's true. And as I'm sitting here and when I'm thinking ahead in the second Samuel, hmm. I'm like, where do you draw the line? Because how, how can you equate David and Bathsheba? Yeah. To anything of of Christ, because he was sinless, and yet David had his faults. Yeah. So if we went into Second Samuel and did this whole practice on that text, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you, and I'm just the wheels are kind of turning, but I, it's like, can you only take and point to this passage and what David did at that point, as opposed to being David as a as a, an entire human being, and then pointing as right. typology to Christ because right. of the negatives that he did. Right. I, I have a thought. And, and, I, and I don't know the answer. Yeah, I, I have a thought. I think it's actually a really good parallel because David, a tradesman from Bethlehem, comes and saves Israel. But as you mentioned later in life, he falls off the wagon, which is just a perfect illustration of the best you have of humanity is this guy David, and he's still far from perfect. It's only Yeah. So I think it's a picture, including mm-hmm. the falling off the way. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, and to add just a bit to that, if you, if you take it up to the level, so if you look at that piece, because that's what, I think this is what's super fun about, about the Bible, is to keep all along the way with these dots that we keep going down and then back up and then down and then back up and down and then back up. And, and being in the depths helps us connect the overall dot. And, and then I have to keep reading the whole story so that I'm not losing the movement. Because I think when you go to Second Samuel, when you start in the judges and then you go through all of the kings, all of this is just building, like, like we talked about during Holy Week, right? And, and Jesus coming into Jerusalem, there was this longing and this expectation because, oh, we think it's, oh, he's not. And we, oh, man, it's another failure. We, oh, man, it's just not going to work. Like, there's this, is he finally the Messiah? Right? Because that's what starts to happen in the prophetic work is there's going to be the Messiah, this king, this anointed one, this son of man, son of God, who will come. And so in the larger story, it, it's like, um, would you call this, I'm not sure about this, would you call this in like, um, like, not, like you have foils, you know, that kind of, yeah. that to the main, like this is actually the main guy or the main character, the main woman that, like Bill's like, that was the one. And all these other were foils to kind of really get you ready to see this, you know, hero or heroine in the story. And so I think that's part of, in God's, in God's story, right? And, and those are hard things to understand, yeah. right? Because like when we read about in, in 1 Samuel 16, you know, when he says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him king over Israel? We also know that, that God says, I regret I made Saul king. Yeah. What do you do with that? I regret. What do you mean you regret? Like if I say I regret something. You made a mistake. Whoo! <laughs> yes, it's, I made a mistake. Boy, I really blew it there. Why did I do that? I'm really paying for it now. And, and so th there's this. There's, there's a, a way that God is writing the story even that he knows that. And the only way that I know, I think I talked about this in, in first semester. So I'll answer the question. I didn't mean to bring up another problem. Um, the way that helps me at least is to see God as, uh, as author, director, and actor of the story. So he, he writes the story. So he's not surprised. Like it's not, when he says he regrets, it's not like, Oh, I, I'm so surprised. I just, I so thought Saul was the guy. Like, he failed. So plan B, okay, I'm going to make sure David will be better. Like, I'll pick him. And I'll kind of make up for this bad choice that I had here. No, he wrote the story. He knew the whole story. Right. Then he's directing the story yeah. along the way, right? And then he's an actor in the story as well. And in that moment, we know that God expresses anthropomorphically. He expresses emotions, and so he's playing a role in the story to say that, and he's genuinely sorry, I think for all kinds of reasons, because of Saul's failure as king. And you could place that same thought on a lot of other characters. In the Bible. Absolutely. Right. So many. Yeah. So many. Maybe Pharaoh. Yeah. So many. Yeah. <laughs> 
if you really wanted to, yes, you could, you could say that. They only do evil continually. <laughs> let's clean the earth. All right, let's, do, let's go one through, through one more quickly. Uh, Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Yeah, they're still waiting for him to come. Boy, I've, I've never thought of that That's question that way. I, I, think, I think that in David's line, I, I think that there was an expectation. I think David believed that. I, I think there is a telescopic nature to prophecy. Um, so I don't think that even prophets always fully knew um, the extent at, which, at what they were uttering. Like, think of it like mountain ranges. Like, I think they could see a certain set of implications of maybe something they were prophesying. And we know, looking back, that we can see these multiple, whether it's layers or it's, you know, oh, there's another range and another range and another range. There's this kind of telescoping effect of that, of that prophetic utterance. So I don't know fully. Maybe other scholars have better opinions of this. Um, I don't know fully, but I think that when David received that promise, I think when Solomon understood the instruction from David of, you know, continue in this way, my son, and God will be with you, and this line, the forever king is supposed to come through you, I think, I think there was a full expectation of that. And I think even, even the Magi, right, when they're, when they're reading the scrolls and the documents of the Jewish people, they themselves, Herod doesn't even understand. He doesn't even know the prophecy of where's the Messiah supposed to. They have to tell him who's Jewish, um, but has lost his connection with his Jewishness in the story, apparently. They have to tell him, well, from Bethlehem, <laughs> which is why then Herod sends in the, the kill squads. Um, for all the, the kids under two. So I, th I think there was certainly a confidence that at least a forever king. I, I don't know what to degree to the particularity and granularity, like, oh, you might be the one and I'm raising you that way. I'm not sure how that worked out, but yeah, that's a great question. Well, well done to step into the story. That was Sunday's sermon, oh, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. Well, anyway, it's okay. So yeah. It's kind of like so, like that. The question that comes to my mind was: Did they think that out with her daughter? Did they try to make her plan this dance to where it would seduce them? Did they know what that seduction would do? No, but they did. They know that seduction works. Yes, they might have. There's a lot of. Does God use these situations? Yes, He does. Yeah, that's a evil situation God has used. Uh, yeah, that's a whole other conversation okay. that we should probably just move on. But <laughs> but yes, that you're now you're kind of going into how does yeah evil and sovereignty of God and that's a whole other class or a semester. <laughs> Psalm Psalm one. Um, the blessings of someone who has not walked by the counsel of the faithless or stood on the way of wrongdoers or lived in the settlement of the arrogant. The happy are they. Rather, his delight 
Um, oh, excuse me, I'm reading wrong translation. Sorry, I was reading Golden Gay. Um, here's, here's CSB. How, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers? Instead, his delight is in Yahweh's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Four, Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So we have four questions. What is the author's intended meaning or main point in this text? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. Uh, there's an old. This was years ago. There was a. Um, I think it was Matthias Media had a track called Two Ways to Live," yes. and I feel like that'd be a, a great uh, description of Psalm One. It's two ways to live. Um, you can be tapped into God's living and nourishing words and instructions and find the way of happiness, delight, prosperity, flourishing, health, vigor, resiliency, the protective oversight from the God of the universe. Or you can reject all of that and stand in judgment. Where does this text fall in the biblical storyline? This is a little bit of a harder question. Um, I, I think it's David. Um, it, you know, we don't we don't know with certainty. Most, most scholars, uh, and it's been a while since I studied. I preached on Psalm one years ago, but I think most scholars think that you know we start. Is it Psalm three? Yeah, Psalm three is where we start getting David. I think most scholars think that one and two are also of David, and one and two are really. They're almost one, like some even think it's just one song that's open. It's both, it's both the beginning of and the introduction to the Psalter. So there's, there's kind of a layer here, I think, of meaning that, that it is what Corey said. And it's also actually everything that you're about to read is going to unpack, really. It's a description of not only Psalm 1, but the Psalter. The Psalter is about, there's these two ma- massive pathways in which to live. Um, so, the, where this falls in the biblical storyline is a bit tougher with the Psalms because the Psalms encompass a thousand years. A thousand years. Psalm, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So it probably dates to about 1400 BC, Psalm 137 begins with the line, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept. Then we remembered Zion, which likely dates that to the post-exilic era. And most scholars believe is probably written around 400 BC. So it, it encompasses the Psalter about a thousand years. That's where it falls. So it falls all over the biblical 
storyline. It's a, it's a collection written by various authors, so it's not one author. Like I've said to you, what's the author's one intended meaning? Well, the Psalter as a whole, it's, it's of David, of Asaph, of Solomon, of the sons of Korah. They cover many types of genres, just as we have many various song genres today. So we've got hymn, lament, song of thanksgiving, country western, and all of it. I mean, it's just all there in the Psalter, right? And while it may be that there are many objectives or aims that you have for the Psalms as a whole, I like, um, so one of my favorite uh, Hebrew scholars is uh, a guy named uh, Mark Futado, who, who teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary. And he's got a, a great little book on how to, how to read the Psalms. And um, he says, I think it's fair to summarize the instruction provided by the book of Psalms in three words. You'll like this, Bruce. Our God reigns. As we grow in believing this truth and in keeping the divine principles taught in the book of Psalms, we grow in experiencing the abundant life so graciously provided by our King. So that the purpose of the Psalms then becomes to instruct God's people in how to experience the abundant life for which God has created and redeemed them. And experience is a large part of the Psalms, right? So it's not merely this, there's other parts other genres in the scriptures and in the storyline of the Bible that, that are teaching you kind of like this history and they're teaching you propositional truths and doctrines in, in these concrete guidelines. The Psalms are massively experiential in all different kinds of, whether it's praise or lament and all the emotions that we see there. John Calvin said of the Psalter, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the human soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. That's what the Holy Spirit has drawn together and inspired the writers of the Psalms to do. So that, I think a tremendous word of counsel to you that you should write in the front of your Bible to remind you is if you are having difficulty getting close and feeling the presence of God, read five Psalms a day. Just start reading five Psalms a day. Just do that. It will change you. It will. This collection was put together under God by the Spirit to help us. And as Jesus himself said in the text, right, we go back to Luke. He said, the Psalms, everything written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there are things written here about Jesus. As we saw in Holy Week, right? He quoted, we saw him quote in just the story we covered, Psalm 22 and Psalm 31. Which made me think, Roger, it'd be great to have a discussion. Because in 22, it's of David. And there's all this conversation. I'm a worm. I'm a man. All this failure. To what degree is Jesus identifying, not identifying? He's taking that psalm on his lips. What does that look like? What's in his head? That would be an interesting conversation and study together. Um, but how, therefore, if that's true, so there's a little bit about you know, where it falls in the storyline, kind of how I think it functions in the storyline of the Bible. How does this text, our question, how does this text point to Jesus? Right there in verse 1, it talks about 
I mean, we know that all people are sinful and wicked mm -hmm. at the core. And that was true in whatever date Psalm 1 was written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's true today. At the time Psalm 1 was written, the only way for someone to be happy and to overcome that was to follow the law, because that's what they had. Today, we have Jesus, who, when he stands between us and God, God sees us as spotless and, mm -hmm. and without sin because of what Jesus did. So we are truly able to live Psalm 1 that I believe up until Christ came, they couldn't truly live Psalm 1 because they only had the law. So we can truly be happy under Christ. And so that's where Christ, I think, comes into this psalm. Is he's the only way for this to be lived. So I think that's a really good answer to question number four, would be my opinion. Like, how do I read this through Jesus? Okay. Right? Because I think that's what you're doing. You're saying, how does Jesus inform my application understanding of this psalm to my life now? And, it, and this could be very connected, but how might this text point to Jesus? Maybe then they need Jesus for that same reason. I got Psalm 1 does not merely call us to the fruitful behavior of avoiding sin's path and delighting to the Lord's law, but it points to the one who did those things on our behalf. Yeah, so in, in that way, are you... Um, so one thought I had is that how it could point to Jesus is Jesus could be the man. I mean, it doesn't, I shouldn't say man, because happy is the one. I'm thinking ESV in my head, it's happy is the man. Um, I, I like this translation. I think it's better. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advance of the way. Like, it could point to Jesus like that. I, in, in, in that, it's a, just a finer point of the answer, Roger. I think you're saying Jesus is the one. And I just want to insert him and go, Yes, he's the only one who could not walk in the advice of the wicked and stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. He didn't, he didn't do that. And another way that, I could, that it maybe could point to Jesus, and this could be a bit of a stretch, and these, these questions won't, you know, sometimes people go, I just don't know that I can get there from this text specifically, this sentence, or, right? But, but it made me think of John 14. You know, I... My delight is in Yahweh's instruction. I am then like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruits and seeds, right? Like, and I'm, I'm sinking my roots. Nehemiah and I studied this, this psalm last night at supper. Like I'm sinking my roots into the word here, right? It's, it's his law. He med his instruction. He meditates on it day and night. Jesus says in John 14, I am the vine. You are the branches. I have to be, you have to be rooted and connected to abide in me and I in you for the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. So there's a sense in which it, it points to Jesus in that way. And who knows, maybe Jesus has someone in his head and says, I'm going to give you a different metaphor. Yeah, Bruce. So I was thinking, uh, also, uh, you talked about hearing sermons about certain things a while ago. It seems like the sermons on this passage, when they talk about meditating, they talk about the cow and, and the chewing. <laughs> Scripture and all the scripture was, was in his mind. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's that man. Yeah. He becomes the prototypical man of Psalm 1. Um, yeah. All right. Good job working through the questions on some texts. Uh, so, I'm going to give you a choice. Our last class of biblical theology is next week. And um, I have more material than one week. And so I have, if, if you wanted to, so we're in this section, if, if some of you still have this old thing that I passed out, like at the very beginning, and then I think about at the midway point. Um, so we're in the section, putting the text to work. That's what we're trying to do here, like a little lab. So the, the next little section of text that I have would be Proverbs, Isaiah, and Nehemiah, or move out of the First Testament to the Second Testament, we could do Luke, John, Colossians. If you had a choice to do, which threesome would you want to do next week? Luke, John, Colossians, since we did one First Testament trio, we'll do a New, a new Testament trio. Yeah, if you want Proverbs, just buy my book. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> I don't make any money from the book, so if it makes you feel any better, <laughs> it all it all goes to grace. All the money is going to grace. So, um, if you buy the book, then you're just giving money to the church. Um, all right, Roger, would you close us in prayer? Sure. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to come here on Wednesday night and to be challenged in our faith and in our understanding of Scripture. And have our eyes opened anew to things that we may not thought of. Uh, Lord, help us to remember and to take this away from us so that it, or with us so that we can study scripture with, uh, with, a, with a fresh set of eyes in ways that we may not have before. Be with us in our activities of the following week and bring us back together next week. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And hey, y'all, just uh, one of your classmates here, as it were, Roger, is, uh, I, I think you've heard and seen Roger and George in, in previous weeks get up and talk about Kairos ministry. That weekend starts early, early, early tomorrow morning and goes through Sunday. And so there's going to be uh, a whole team reaching to people in prison. And there's about 24, 25 prisoners. Is that? There will be 24 going through through the program and then a six, six of them who have before who will be helping us. So there'll be okay. 30 inmates and 24 free world people of which of our church, George Hill, myself, Ezra Meyer, and Gary Gibbs. So just in the prison all weekend. I, it'd be great if y'all would, and if you're listening to this podcast before, yes, if you could be praying for that and that there would be people who don't know Jesus who would grow one step closer to Jesus. So, and we look forward to hearing a report at some point at a grace service. It'll be great to hear how that went. All right. Love you guys. God bless you.